This afternoon we've reached the last doing word in our little series, our little mini-series of four. And uh, to re- you can see them there on the screen. To recap, we've been saying that this idea of new life, the Christian faith, um, involves a new identity, uh, a new relationship, a new purpose. And we represented those ideas by the doing words there, standing, walking, and last week we were thinking about fighting. This afternoon we come to think about Christianity being all about a new destiny. And I'm characterising that by the idea of running. Now, some of you know, um, some of you don't, some of you do, that, that a few years ago I ran a marathon. Um, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Unbelievable. I've never really been a runner prior to that. I've never really been a runner since <laughs> that. Um, but a friend challenged me to run a marathon for charity. He was in Manchester, and he told me it was one of the flattest marathon courses there were. And if you're going to do a marathon, that appeals, doesn't it? Make sure it's flat, for starters. I wasn't aiming for a time. I, I, I said to many people, I, I was just hoping to finish before they started taking up the cones and opening the roads. And, uh, and I did. It took about, what did I, what did I get, five, five hours 40 or something, I don't know. But, but they, they hadn't taken up the cones when I finished, so I was pleased about that. But all the way through the training, my question was, will I make it to the end? Because it was for charity, there was a local physio who very kindly offered weekly sessions for free. It was his way of supporting what we were doing. Um, I, don't, I think I would have been too tired to pay for it all. But, but every week I would go to visit this physio and it uh, included uh, sticking needles in my legs. And uh, there, were, there was things with electric pulses that sort of gave you shocks. It was all to do with helping your muscles recover more quickly. And I learned about body parts that I didn't even know that I had. One of them was called the illotibial band. Who knew that we had one of those? I've got two of them, um, and, they, and they don't get on with my knees, either of them. Um, so there were exercises to try and make this ITB, as physios call it, um, a little bit more uh, friendly with my knees, let's put it that way. Um, I remember sitting in his treatment room about two or three weeks before the big day, discussing with him whether I should start the race or not, because my knees were hurting so much. And um, I I learned a very simple, he was a good physio, and he said, if you run a marathon, you only need two things. I mean, that's not quite true, is it? But he, he said, you need two things, you need strong legs and a strong heart. And he said, I think your legs are already strong enough. So what we need to do is give your knees a rest. But over the next two or three weeks, you need to do something that will maintain and strengthen your heart's fitness. So he he came up with a plan of me every other day getting on an exercise bike at home for four hours at a good pace. (coughs) And to do that every other day with a rest in between so that the heart would be pumping, but the knees would be not sort of under any stress or pain. 
So I, I can't tell you how many movies I watched with headphones in, in that time, set it up in our bedroom and watched about 20 movies, two movies at a time, four hours. But, but it did my heart good. And when the day of the race came, I was able to start with no pain and we got through it. There, then there was the Jai factor. I've not seen Jai today, is he, is he here? Um, Jai happened to be running as well. And about halfway through, Jai turned to me and said, I feel really sick, I think I'm going to give up. And so my like, encouragement instincts kicked in. And I said to Jai, don't, don't, don't worry, Jai, see that traffic lights in the distance there? Let's run to that, and then we'll stop and we'll walk for a bit. And this happened for seven or eight miles. We basically cajoled each other, ran a bit, ran two miles, stopped for a bit, ran, stopped, ran... And then we got near Old Trafford, where the finishing line was. And as a massive thank you, Jai did a sprint finish and left me for dead. <laughs> so he'll enjoy listening to that on the um, online version if he's not here this afternoon. But, uh, yeah, thank you for Jai. I'm not bitter about that, even though it was a few years ago. I still remember. So, anyway, it was very emotional. Here, th- this was a picture... The best picture I could find just before crossing a line outside Old Trafford. There's a better one where I'm actually smiling. But the relief, the emotion, there were a few tears actually um, round the back of the finishing line. Um, it, it was an amazing day. Now, in the, in the passage that we read today from the book of Hebrews, please turn there and keep your finger on that page. The idea here of running a long-distance race is used as a metaphor for the Christian life. And the emphasis here is on perseverance. This is a marathon, not a sprint. There's a destiny in mind, and there's a way to run in order to reach that destiny as well. It says there... In verse 12, that, that in chapter 11, there's a great list of people who, in a sense, have already finished their races. Great heroes of the faith. And the writer to the Hebrews here says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he almost envisages all these previous runners now being in the stadium as you are running your race. And this great cloud of witnesses are cheering you on as you run your race. And the writer says, let us throw off everything that hinders. Take off the rucksack with all the bricks in it. Let's get rid of all the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And in verse 3, we'll see that the idea here is to appreciate something about Jesus that will enable us and help us to carry on to the end. Consider him, verse 3, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is about perseverance, running our race to the very end and running well. One of the things that occurs to me as I reflect on this and think about this is that I do want to explore with you what is distinctly Christian 
about this idea. If this was just about positive thinking or the exertion of willpower, perhaps we could, inv perhaps we could have invited any motivational speaker to come and, uh, I don't know, give me a day off as, as well. We, I, I think you could have a, a Muslim or a Jew or a Sikh or even an atheist who could come and give a motivational pep talk about long-term goals and focus and making sacrifice in order to achieve that. So my, my question this afternoon is, is what, what is distinctly Christian about this idea? I think, I think the other challenge for all of us is that sometimes I wonder whether we hear this kind of talk so much in our modern culture we, we hear so many people who try to inspire us with pep talks that we have what I want to call inspiration fatigue. And we, we, we kind of hear it and we go, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Thanks very much. It's all very nice. But, but I, I'm not really listening. I've turned one ear off. So I, I, I don't want us to zone out. I don't want this to be lame. Our question is, how do we think about the end of the race, our destiny, and how do we think about running our attitude in a distinctively Christian way? I think there's a massive clue in this passage that will help us to shape our thinking in this area. So a, a few years ago, uh, th there's a rap artist who is known by various names. He's known as Puff Daddy or P. Diddy or Puffy or Duffy or whatever he feels like being called at the time, it sounds like, he released a song a few years ago that was called It's All About the Benjamins. Uh, this was slang for a $100 bill because a $100 bill has a picture of Benjamin Franklin on it. So it's all about the Benjamins meant. It's all about the money, the bling, the trappings of success. For Puff Daddy, or whatever we want to call him, there's a note of protest in this song as well. He grew up in Harlem. He lost his dad in a shooting at the age of two. And so there's a note of protest in this song. The idea that life consists of overcoming obstacles to be successful. For him, it's all about the Benjamins means I survived, I overcame, and I've got the material trappings to prove that I'm successful and cool and happy. I've, 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 I've risen above my background. How would you finish that sentence in your own life? It's all about the Benjamins? What about your life? What, what, what would be your phrase? It's all about the blank. Well, here in Hebrews, the writer urges us to look at Jesus. In fact, he urges us not just to look, but to deeply ponder and consider and fix our gaze on him. And he says something very significant in verse 2. The writer says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, of faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For Jesus, I want to say from this passage, it's all about the joy. It wasn't about the Benjamins. It's all about the joy. Uh, would you agree, this is not lame then. This is not boring then. Neither is it some kind of moralising pep talk. This is about reality facing, death conquering, cross enduring joy. Jesus had heroic self-control not because he was gritting his teeth, but because there was a joy behind and underneath his perseverance that drove him on. It was hard, but Jesus wasn't just displaying a kind of grim determination. Jesus was looking forward to something amazing. Let me just take you briefly, don't need to turn to it, but let me take you briefly to another place in the Old Testament to illustrate this idea, I hope. In the book of Genesis, we're introduced to a man called Jacob. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he was a real character. Um, he, he, he was a bit of a con man, to be honest. And uh, he ripped off his twin brother... And as a result, his twin brother wanted to kill him and he had to scarper quick. And uh, so he, 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 he fled north, a long way north, to his uncle Laban's house, where he got a taste of his own medicine because it turned out his uncle Laban was more of a con artist than he was. So kind of what goes around comes around. But anyway, Jacob, while he was with his uncle, working for his uncle, he fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he agreed to work for seven years to gain Rachel's hand in marriage. When we read Genesis 29 verse 20, it's a very interesting verse that says, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed to him like only a few days because of his love for her. He worked for seven years and it felt like seven days. Why? Because he loved her. It was worth it. We might even say about Jacob that for the joy set before him, he endured the work. Because at the end, the prize that he was looking forward to was Rachel. Wow. He's, that's the idea. Now, what about Jesus? What was the joy set before him? Let me read to you a quote um, by another author that connects these two ideas very well. I quote, Jesus must have set his heart on some kind of Rachel. 
Jesus must have set his heart on some beauty. And because it was the passion of his heart, he was able even to endure the cross. That's the secret of his self-control. What was the passion of Jesus' heart that gave him self-control? What was it that he wanted? What was it that he didn't have before the cross that he, that he wanted to have? And this author goes on. It couldn't have been the father. He always had the father. It couldn't have been heaven. He already had heaven. It couldn't even have been the command of the universe because he had, as the son of God, the command of the universe. What was it that he didn't have before the cross that he had after the cross? What was the thing he set his heart on? What was his Rachel? There is only one thing. You. And me. We were his Rachel. Wow. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus loved you enough to endure the cross to save you. To him, you were worth it. And look at the verse again. It says here that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, he made light of it. It was hard and he did feel the shame of it. But it's as if he laughed it all off. He scorned it for the joy of winning you and me. For Jesus, it's all about the joy. There are many things about Jesus that, that I find compelling and attractive, but let me try and describe this one unique thing. Under the heading, the way joy works, I'm talking here about the joy of Jesus, the way joy worked in his life. The immense heaving ocean of joy that is in Jesus is the deep foundation for both his security and his generosity. So let me try and draw it like this. This was the best way I could think of, of saying this. The joy of Jesus is the foundation of his security and his sharing. The reason Jesus could endure the cross was because he was already utterly secure and he was absolutely delighted to share. Jesus has always been filled with joy because he knows who he is and he has had forever the approval and affection and love and affirmation of his father. We haven't got time to dwell on it, but this hints, doesn't it, at the staggering and beautiful mystery 
of God being a trinity. It, it is interesting. When the Bible says God is love, the Bible is implying there that love is an essential part of God's nature. If, if, you, if you're trying to define what God is, the, the Bible says God is love. It, it, it's essentially part of who he is. But it couldn't be part of his essential nature if God was alone before he created anything. Because you, you can't be love if there's no one to love. So if God was always alone before he created, love can't be an essential part of his nature. It's something that he only had after he created beings to love. This wonderful mystery in the Bible, because God is one and yet three, he has always known relationship. The Father, Son, and Spirit have always been head over heels in love with one another. It has been their eternal joy to delight in one another. Jesus is therefore filled with joy because he is loved in a way that is utterly secure. Jesus is not fighting to be recognized. He isn't striving to find affirmation and approval. There's a sense in which none of that matters to him because he already has it in spades. Jesus comes into the world not as a grumpy individual, but as a eternally joyful being. But this is not something that is selfish or self-indulgent. This love within God naturally overflows. Oh, I'd love for us to talk more about that. So, so Jesus is also filled with joy because his security liberates him to give himself away. To win others so that they too can then share in this same joy. So in, what, what I'm trying to convey here is that Jesus is joyfully secure and joyfully generous. And if our question is, how do I run in my Christian life in such a way that I'll make it to the end? The answer that the author of Hebrews gives us here is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we drink deeply of this truth, there's at least three things for us to grasp. Let, let's cover these uh, briefly. They're on the program there. Number one, in Christ, you can therefore run secure. In other words, because of Jesus and what he's, because he, he's endured a cross to save you, you don't need to fight for this to earn it or to pay for it. He gives himself to you for free and forever. So you also, when you believe in Jesus, could not be more secure. In him, you have forgiveness, acceptance. He gives you his power and peace and love. The glory of the Christian gospel is that Christ, in his generous, joyful security, loves the unworthy, the undeserving, the broken, the bruised, the dysfunctional, the sinful. He loves to love you. 
you are his Rachel. He scorned the shame of the cross to win you. In Christ, you can run secure. Secondly, in Christ, you can run free. It is incredible, isn't it, the things that we do to gain approval. Many of those things are uncertain and sometimes end in disappointment. But all of them pale away compared to this. In Christ, you're not just secure, but free from the threat of rejection or abandonment. Free from the need to prove anything. You you are not now on the outside striving to get in. He is the one who brings you in. One writer says this, when you see him enduring because you are his beauty and delight, you will be able to endure because he will become your beauty and your delight. The thought and the knowledge that he loved you like that will make you love him like that. The thought that he made you his beauty will make him your beauty. In Christ, you can run free. Thirdly, in Christ, you can run generously. This new security and freedom also sets you free to share yourself with others. You you don't have to fight anymore for what you can get. You don't have to hoard or store up goodwill in case it runs out. Because you have salvation and security and freedom in Jesus, you can give yourself away freely with joy to serve others. <clears throat> Let me try and reinforce this idea of security and generosity by just giving you a couple of practical examples. Um, the, the, these are the two that just where my, my mind goes. First of all, the, I, I want to... Just go to John 13. Maybe if you've got a Bible, keep your page page in the finger. Keep your finger in the page of Hebrews. And just go to John's Gospel in chapter 13. And we're just going to see the first example really is the humility of Jesus here. This, This account here in John 13, it's on page 108. 1081. This isn't a cart of the last meal Jesus had with his friends before being crucified the next day. Sometimes people call it the Last Supper. And in John's Gospel, we get an extended, um, there's a few chapters here of teaching that Jesus gives to his friends. John was there, and he tells us some important things in verse 1. He tells us, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world. The next phrase is hard to translate. It says here, he loved them to the end. Some, some versions say he now showed them the full extent 
of his love. He loved them to the max. And then look at um, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning (coughs) to God. There's something there of an expression of Jesus' security. He's going to be crucified the next day. He knows who he is. He knows what's about to happen. He knows where he's going. And in all of that, he loves his friends. What does he do in the light of that knowledge? We're told that in verse 4, so. That little word, so. Knowing all of this, so, Jesus gets up from the meal, he strips down to his underwear, he takes a towel, and he goes around the room washing the dirty feet of his friends who were reclining around the table. None of them had the grace to do it. And the greatest one among them, because he knows who he is, he has nothing to prove. There's no pecking order to be debating. Jesus knows who he is. His joyful security leads to his joyful generosity. And in humility, he serves his dear friends by washing their feet. Peter wants to argue about that later. You can read about that at home. You'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, yes, I will. If you don't let me wash your feet, just wait till you see what I do for you tomorrow. That's the argument that Jesus uses. Trust me, I love you. Let me do this for you. The joy of Jesus is his deep security and his generous service. The second second example I want to give you is from the life and ministry of Paul. Paul is a key figure in the New Testament. Um, He was a very religious man, striving to please God by doing his best, and he made a good fist of it. He was a supremely moral man. And when he first heard about Christianity, his zeal for his religion, and in a sense, his own self-righteousness made him hate Christianity with a passion. And he gave his life to persecuting Christian believers and trying to snuff out Christianity. He had Christians put in prison, even had some of them stoned to death. He believed that he was fighting for God. And Christ met him as he was traveling to seek more believers to crush. And you would think that encounter would have been like a bolt of lightning. Far from it. Rather than punishing him, Christ instead loved him, forgave him, and poured out his grace into him. Forgive me for jumping around here, but I I wanted to take you to another passage where Paul talks about this uh, experience. You'll find it in a letter he wrote to Timothy. We were were thinking about this letter last week. Just go with me 
to uh, the first letter of Paul to Timothy on page 1191. And listen to how Paul describes his own story. <coughs> 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, get this, Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners of whom I am the worst. And for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. He can hardly believe it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst. It's unbelievable. It's my own story. It's unbelievable. And what difference did it make in Paul's life? This little outburst here of spontaneous joy is a digression. He's not even talking about this in the letter. What prompts him is the fact that he talks about the glory of the gospel. He makes a little comment in verse 11 about the glory of the good news of the gospel. And that prompts him to go on this little spontaneous little burst of joy. As soon as he thinks about the gospel, it's like, oh man, Timothy, I can hardly believe it. God has entrusted this gospel to someone like me. I wanted to kill Christians. God has entrusted this good news to me. To me, the thought of that. Oh, Timothy, I absolutely hated him. And yet, he loved me. And Christ sent him. Paul's logic here is that the security... And love that he now knows from Christ in his life stirs his heart to share that same love generously, sacrificially with others so that they might know it too. It's the same pattern. It is his joy to know that he is truly loved and... It is his joy to pour himself out in sharing the grace that he now has 
with other people. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about running. He talks about running to get the prize at the end of the race. And we might think he's talking about getting to the end, getting to heaven, so that God says to him, well done. There's surely some truth in that. But I'm not convinced for Paul that it's purely individualistic in that way. What he really wants is to take people with him. What he really wants is that others would come to know the same joy that he has come to know. And so he says, at the end of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, everything I do, I do for the sake of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings. One, another writer puts it this way, the most beautiful thing, this is Paul speaking, the most beautiful thing in my life, the joy that is set before me, this great passion which is to have other people enjoy what I'm enjoying. This is my ultimate wealth. This is my ultimate status. This is my ultimate, what I have in Jesus. What that does is it makes me want to increase the community of people who enjoy that, who can sit there along with me and say, isn't he magnificent? In other words, Paul's joy that flows from his security is to share the gospel and to see them making Jesus their treasure too. It's important to note, isn't it, that Paul isn't building an empire here. He doesn't want the church to revolve around him. Security that leads to generosity and other people making Jesus their treasure. The same idea is all over Paul's writings. Let me just show you two or three. They'll come on the slides here. For example, Paul could write to the Philippian Christians. Oh, we'll have to flick on a couple. Here we go. Ye whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Or we could read what Paul said to Christians in Thessalonica. Here's another one. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. To the Corinthian church, Paul sums his ministry up in a single sentence when he says this. We work with you for your joy. What, 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 a, what a goal for a Christian minister that is. He's not trying to build an empire. His job is to work with people for their joy. Security and generosity, all fueled by joy. It's not about the Benjamins. It's all about the joy. This grace and love that Paul has received from Christ... It secures him and liberates him. And we can see it in those references to his ministry. The people in his church are his joy. What he loves the most is to spread the joy. So Paul's running is shaped and fueled by this same joy. There's hard work 
determination, tears, sweat sometimes. But his race is not just about willpower. It's about joy power. Let me close with one final thought. We've been thinking of destiny. And we've been thinking about how we run. Destiny and attitude are both important. I think we could sum up the Christian life. This, this is our last slide. Like this. Running to joy. With joy. Let me take you to one final reference. And then we're done. John's Gospel. We're back in John. Chapter 17. In this chapter, there's a prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples. And then he prays for all believers who will come to faith through their witness. So this is Jesus on earth, the end of the Last Supper, before he's crucified the next day. And this is the prayer of his heart. John chapter 17, verse 24. Page 1085. Jesus prays, Father, this is the Father that he has loved and who has loved him forever. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Father, I want them to be with me and I want them to see my glory. I want them for all eternity to be seeing my glory in such a way that makes them forever be going, wow, would you get a load of that? This is Jesus' prayer to his Father. This is the destiny. This is why he endured the cross. This is the joy that he was looking forward to. But it also means for us that Jesus is not a means to another different end. What, what this means is that he is the goal. He's the destination. He is the end of the journey. He himself, he himself is our soul-satisfying, joy-bringing destination. We therefore run with joy, towards joy. Let me be really simple as we close this little series. There's only really two destinies the Bible doesn't teach karma cycles of reincarnation God's way teaches us that we have one life one race to run and God reaches out to us to reveal that Christ his beloved joyfully secure son has come and given himself for sinners like us so that we can know him and know this satisfaction and joy in him 
you, you, you and I, we, we can refuse him and we can strive to achieve joy in some other way, but whatever you pin that on, it can never compare to him. And because of that, it will only ever end in tears. So the, the call of this little mini-series, the call of God to us this afternoon is to come and trust in Christ. And then you'll be able to stand with a new identity. You'll be able to walk intimately with God through all the ups and downs of life. You will be able to fight the good fight of faith with a new purpose and all God's power. And you'll be able to run with joy, towards joy, secure and free and generous. May it be so for all of you. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? And then we're going to sing. Father, we really thank you that Christianity is not miserable. We thank you that it's not a grumpy religion. We thank you that it's not dour. We thank you that it's all about the joy. We thank you that the Bible tells us that God is love. And we thank you that yours is a love that overflows. And even though this world is broken, even though we have lived like your enemies, like Paul of old, we thank you that your love reaches us even in our darkness to bring us home. Thank you, Father, for the overflowing happiness and joy of Jesus. Thank you for his security that liberates him to give himself away to win his Rachel. Father, I pray that you would teach us Help us to grow in our, in our sense of how secure we are because of your grace towards us. And may that security stimulate us, liberate us, send us out to be generous and to share your wonderful grace with others. We know that it is costly. We know that it is hard. We know... that it was hard for Jesus. Give us courage. Fill us with your grace. Help us to scorn the shame to bring your grace to others, we pray. And we ask that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified, exalted, lifted up here in Rotherham, in our community and beyond, to the praise of his wonderful name and grace. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.